You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Greetings, my friends. Thank you for joining us here at the Explorers Podcast. Today is part four in our series on British explorer Richard Francis Burton. A reminder, check out our website, explorerspodcast.com, to see maps, photos, and links of all sorts of stuff about our subject. So, last time, we followed Burton as he made a daring march to the inland city of Harar in East Africa and returned. It was an audacious feat, as no European had ever entered the city. So, big kudos for Burton. Burton and his team would next decide to make a go for the Nile and see if they could find the river's source. However, an attack by Somali natives would shatter those plans. One of Burton's officers had been killed in the fighting, while Burton and John Hanning Speak had been severely injured. Burton had taken a javelin to the face, which had gone into one cheek and out the other. The incident dimmed Burton's accomplishments, as this is what people focused on, instead of his daring journey to Harar. So, Burton would head back to England to recuperate. The javelin had torn out four teeth and ripped his palate, but he had recovered quickly, although he would forever have scars on both cheeks, which can be seen in later photos. In England, Burton would get his book about the Somaliland expedition ready and then go looking for a position in the British army in the Crimea. England, France, and the Ottoman Empire were at war with Russia, and it had been a bloody conflict. Burton would send out all sorts of letters of introduction, offering his services to various units. It would take some time, But in the summer of 1855, he would land a position as chief of staff with Beetson's horses, a contingent of irregular Turkish cavalry commanded by General W.F. Beetson. They were stationed near Istanbul. Burton's time in the Crimean War would be a disappointment. Beetson's unit was undisciplined and fights and quarrels were commonplace. Burton worked to train the men, but with mixed results. Also, he drew up plans to relieve the city of Kars in western Turkey, which was under siege by the Russians. But nothing would ever come of any of it. Regarding his plan to rescue cars, it was rejected by the British higher-ups. Burton, by the way, became convinced that there was a secret deal giving cars to the Russians. And regarding Beetson's horses, well, they would never see any action. The men struggled with discipline and caused one too many incidents, forcing the British to dismiss General Beetson. Burton resigned in support of his commanding officer. Burton would not join another unit as the Crimean War ended in March of 1856. And that takes us back to Africa. Burton, like so many other adventurers, had been bit by the exploration bug while on the Somaliland expedition. It was a desire to accomplish something special, something grand. And for him, it was the search for the source of the Nile River. Burton's previous attempt to find the source had ended in disaster, but the desire to give it another go only burned brighter after the disappointment of the Crimean War 
and some criticism of his handling of things in Somaliland. A few things about Burton I want to note. The army wasn't a long-term future for him. He didn't like the army, and the army didn't like him very much. The problem was that he had no fortune to fall back on, and no obvious prospects. Here he was, 35 years old, and he was wondering what his future held. While Burton was never obsessed with money, he understood the need for it. And regarding fame, I don't think he craved it like many other explorers. What he desired, I believe, was recognition, an acknowledgement of his brilliance or greatness or whatever you wanted to call it. If he could get that nod of recognition from the world, the money would follow. And so he set his sights on finding the source of the Nile, or as Burton called it, quote, the unveiling of Isis, end quote. Burton researched how historians through the ages had pondered the secrets of the Nile, reading accounts going back thousands of years to historians such as Pliny and Herodotus. If he could accomplish this, it would place Burton amongst the ranks of the world's greatest explorers. He was seduced by this idea, and who wouldn't be? And so, in April of 1856, Burton decided to head back to Africa. His plan was not to go up the Nile, but to approach its source, wherever that was, from the west following established caravan routes. For this, he would start in Zanzibar, an island off the coast of Tanzania, and march inland. Arab traders said that there was a great lake, the Sea of Ujiji, in that direction. In fact, Arab maps had, for centuries, placed multiple lakes in the continent's interior. Heinrich Barth, a famed German explorer, wrote to Burton saying, Don't go searching for the source of the Nile. Just go to discover this great inland lake. Find that, and you have a good chance of finding the Nile's source. By the way, for thousands of years, men had tried to go up the Nile to find its source, but they were always being thwarted by cataracts, rapids, swamps, disease, and hostile natives. And so, in the summer of 1856, Burton pitched his plan to the Royal Geographical Society. The Society would approve the idea and allocate a thousand pounds for the endeavor. The East India Company was supposed to give another thousand pounds, but they bagged on that promise and instead gave Burton two years' leave with pay. It would have to do. Now, Burton wanted to bring three Europeans with him on the expedition. The first was Dr. John Steinhauser, a surgeon in Aden, in Arabia, and a close friend of Burton's. The second was German missionary and explorer Johannes Rebmann. Nine years earlier, Rebmann, along with Johann Krumpf, would be the first Europeans to discover Mount Kilimanjaro. He was now operating a mission not far from Zanzibar. Burton had sent the man a letter offering him a position as a guide and interpreter on the expedition. Plus, he had a letter from Redmond's superiors at the Church of Missionary Society in London, granting him leave to undertake the expedition if he so desired. The third man was John Hanning Speak, who had been on the Somaliland expedition. The inclusion of Speak was, in hindsight, a bad decision for Burton. Let's recount the relationship between the two men. Burton saw a lot of positives in Speak. He was a brave and competent officer. He was an accomplished hunter and had experience in Africa. But Burton had pointed out, publicly, the deficiencies of speak. He didn't know Arabic or any other African language. He didn't understand the Muslim faith and the people who followed it. In doing this, Burton was just being matter-of-fact, but speak took those comments as a slight. Also, in his book on the Somaliland expedition, Burton had rewritten speak's journals, something speak, again, took as an insult. Of speak's adventures, Burton would downplay the dangers, saying, quote, his life was never in real peril, end quote which was untrue. Speak had been in plenty of danger, and it would upset him that Burton would diminish what he had done and the dangers he had faced. All of this made Speak dislike Burton, but the man was an expert at hiding such things, and thus Burton offered him another job, not realizing the animosity that Speak held towards him. No matter, despite his dislike of Burton, for Speak, this was a chance to return to Africa. He, like Burton, yearned for glory and fame, and better with Burton than with no one. 
and thus he accepted the job with Burton's upcoming expedition. Now, before we take off for Africa, I want to mention one thing about Burton's personal life. While in England, he rekindled his interest in Isabel Rundell, despite the two not seeing each other for several years. Isabel had never forgotten Burton and had tracked his exploits in Africa. Their relationship would get quite serious, but it was doomed, at least for the time being. Isabel's family was staunchly Catholic, and Isabel's mother refused to sanction any marriage to Burton. And then the inevitable would happen when Burton would shuffle off to Africa. Burton couldn't tell Isabel to her face that he was leaving, and instead sent a letter to her sister and had her deliver the news. Burton would be gone for at least two years, maybe three. The romance would have to wait. Burton would travel to Cairo and meet up with Speak, and then Bombay, which is modern-day Mumbai, arriving on November 23, 1856. The East India Company would provide Burton with a gunboat to take him, Speak, and their supplies to Zanzibar. They would depart on December 2nd, brimming with excitement. Of the moment, Burton would write, quote, A journey, in fact, appeals to imagination, to memory, to hope, the sister graces of our mortal being, end quote. The ship would arrive in Zanzibar on December 20th. Zanzibar, which is an island off the coast, was notorious as the main hub of slave and ivory trade on the eastern coast of Africa. The sights that greeted Burton and Speak were beyond imagination. They saw dogs eating human flesh on the beaches, the result of six slaves being thrown overboard by slavers before landing to avoid paying taxes on them. The city was filthy and disease was everywhere. Burton and Speak would arrive at a tumultuous moment for the city. Zanzibar's longtime sultan had recently died and his two sons were vying for his throne. Burton needed to hire porters, guides, soldiers, animals, and provisions, and no one could really help him. Not even the British consulate could help due to the chaos of the city. Now, despite the craziness, Burton would establish that caravans went into the African interior to what the Arabs called the Sea of Ujiji. The natives called it Lake Tanganyika. However, he was advised to wait before heading inland, and that's because at this time of the year, some of the areas to the west were in what was called the dead season, which meant they were now rife with famine and drought and the dead season was followed in some places by a lot of rain, making travel difficult. Burton would heed this advice and not rush off. And so Burton would wait, and he did what he always did. He explored, and he took notes. He went to the prisons, the brothels, the docks, and the slave markets. He collected local proverbs and studied the political history of the island. He studied the flora and the fauna. And of course, he researched sexual customs of the locals. Plus, he drank and used opium. And he took to studying Swahili, the predominant language of the area. It was all part of Burton being Burton. He would eventually write a two-volume series about the island called Zanzibar, City, Island, and Coast, which wouldn't be published until 1872. It was nearly 1,000 pages of Burton writing about everything he saw and experienced. Burton was, by the way, highly critical of pretty much everyone in Zanzibar. He said the Arabs were corrupted by slavery, which he detested, and he wondered if the native Africans were even fully developed as a race. Now, while Burton wasn't prepared to begin his expedition inland just yet, he would organize a reconnaissance mission in early January. The mission would consist of Burton, Speak, two Portuguese servants brought from India, and some Africans. A local man, Said bin Salim, was engaged as the expedition's guide and overseer. They would travel lightly, bringing presents with them for the chiefs, including beads and cotton cloth. The expedition would take an Arab dhow, a small ship, to the north about 25 miles, or 40 kilometers, to the island of Pemba. There, Burton indulged himself by investigating rumors that the famed pirate, Captain Kidd, had buried treasure on the island. He would find nothing. Next, Burton would sail north, up the African coast, about 80 miles, or 130 kilometers, to the port of Mombasa, reaching the city on January 16th. 
Outside of Mombasa was the mission house of German explorer Johannes Rebmann, who Burton had sent a letter to months earlier, offering him a position as a guide and interpreter. Rebmann was tempted by the offer, but passed. Byron Farwell, in his biography of Burton, said this of Rebmann, quote, He at first considered going, but changed his mind after meeting Burton. The expedition appeared to rely too much on its guns and too little on God. End quote. Burton was relieved by Redmond's decision, as he was concerned the German would try and convert every tribesman that he met along the way. Also, he didn't want to upset the Arab sultans and merchants who operated the caravans coming in and out of Zanzibar. The last thing they wanted was a Christian missionary preaching to the natives and stirring up trouble. Sidetrack here. One interesting thing about Burton that I have not talked about was his utter lack of interest in trying to change the world of those that he encountered. He did not have an interest in a person's religion or the politics of a place. It was a rare thing amongst many explorers, and at times at the root of their demise. The one exception to this may have been Burton's dislike of slavery. He was not afraid to denounce the practice, but he did nothing beyond that. Anyhow, sidetrack done. Now, Burton would toy with the idea of traveling toward Mount Kilimanjaro, about 170 miles northwest of Mombasa, or 275 kilometers, and swinging around the northern side of the mountain, and then going west. Part of the reason for this excursion to the area around Mombasa was to explore the possibility of this route. However, the region was experiencing a famine, and the Maasai tribesmen were out raiding, even coming within a few miles of Mombasa. This meant there was no way Burton would be able to hire any porters. Had circumstances been better, and the expedition decided to follow the route north of Kilimanjaro, Burton and his men would have run straight into Lake Victoria, the largest lake in Africa, and the true source of the Nile. But that was not to be. Plus, Burton had a verified route to the interior, directly west of Zanzibar. He would just have to wait a few months before departing. Thus, the team took their ship and explored down the coast, and eventually headed back to Zanzibar on March 6th. So in Zanzibar, Burton and Speak, who had both gotten sick, would spend the next couple of months recuperating. The heat, by the way, was brutal, and Zanzibar was a cesspool, perfect for nurturing disease. And then there was the rain, averaging up to 15 inches, or 380 millimeters, each month. The heavy rains of the season would end in early June, and Burton would suddenly lurch into action with regard to the expedition. Saeed bin Salim, who had been on Burton's earlier excursion, would serve as the caravan chief and guide. Burton would hire 36 native porters, 25 donkeys, and 5 animal handlers. There would also be 13 soldiers, called Askaris, supplied by the Sultan of Zanzibar. The Askaris were mercenaries, descendants of Indian soldiers brought to Zanzibar several generations earlier. Also added were 15 gun-carrying slaves. They were hired from a man named Rush Ramji, and thus Burton called them the Sons of Ramji. There would also be 20 other slaves to work as bearers or whatever. Burton would insist on paying the slaves a wage. In addition, Burton hired a slave-turned-soldier named Sidi Mubarak, who would be nicknamed Bombay. The man spoke some Hindustani, so he would be helpful as an interpreter for Captain Speak. Burton respected the man, and he would be a key aide. By the way, if this all sounds impressive, it really wasn't, as Burton wanted 130-plus porters. Now, a few red flags about all of this. First, Burton had relied on others to hire soldiers and porters. He took it on faith that they would be quality men. This was a serious mistake. He was now running a large operation, and he needed to demonstrate administrative chops, but he had let others do some of the most critical work for him. Second, Burton took far too long to put together his team. He had spent six months in Zanzibar before getting serious about hiring porters and so forth. By then, other caravans had hired the more reliable men. To a degree, I think Burton believed that everyone would just see how brilliant he was and just fall in line during the March West, but he would find out that that's not how things worked here. 
Third, in addition to not being able to find enough porters, Burton could not get enough pack animals. This meant that a lot of gear would have to be sent later. Burton was, again, trusting a local to make sure this happened. Not exactly the best strategy for someone in an unfamiliar place. And the final red flag was that there would be no doctor. And you are probably asking, what about Dr. Steinhauser from Aden? Well, Steinhauser had been delayed, and when he finally got going, he would get sick and have to return to Aden. This was a huge blow. As we are going to see, having a doctor would have been a major advantage for the expedition. Plus, Steinhauser was a trusted friend of Burton's. He would have been a welcome companion for what is going to be a very difficult journey. No matter, the loss of Dr. Steinhauser was devastating. Heading into the depths of Africa without a doctor was a serious mistake, although it's not like there were doctors just hanging out on corners waiting to be hired. Despite the loss, Burton and his team would prepare for their departure. The expedition would at least be well equipped. For trading, there were beads, cloth, brass wire, and other trinkets. Provisions for the trek included soap, salt, pepper, pickles, vinegar, oil, sugar, tea, cigars, five dozen bottles of brandy, and medicine. There were also tools, 70 pounds of nails, extra clothing, turbans, caps, umbrellas, fish hooks, lanterns, knives, plus a Union Jack. Gotta have that flag. To keep track of everything, Burton and Speak would have boxes of paper, notebooks, pads, pencils, ink, pens, and even an artist's kit for sketching. For mapping and surveying and taking readings, there were nautical almanacs, maps, two chronometers, a rain gauge, a couple of prismatic compasses, four thermometers, two sextants, a mountain barometer, a sundial, a telescope, and other instruments. The caravan would have a lot of gear and camp furniture as well. This included two tents, blankets, pillows, a table and two chairs, cooking gear, and utensils. And finally, the expedition would be well-armed. There were a pair of smoothbore muskets, three rifles, a Colt carbine, three revolvers, three swords, and 140 pounds of gunpowder. There would also be muskets for the expedition's soldiers. One item the team did not take was a steel-framed boat that Burton had bought. The 20-foot boat was made up of seven parts, each weighing under 40 pounds, or 18 kilograms. The idea would have been to haul it with them and then put it together when they reached the inland lake. However, the lack of transport animals meant that the boat would have to be left behind. As a note, some of the ammunition, plus some cloth and beads and wire, were left behind as well. Those items, unlike the boat, were to come up on a later caravan. The expedition would cross over from Zanzibar to the mainland on June 17, 1857, and depart ten days later. The goal of the expedition was to find the Sea of Ujiji, a.k.a. Lake Tanganyika. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? 
Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. The expedition would push west. Now, this was not going to be men slashing through thick jungles. No, Burton was going to be following well-known and well-traveled caravan routes into the interior. These were slave and ivory trade routes. While this was a huge advantage to Burton, it also came with its challenges. He would have to deal with each chief along the way, paying tolls and bribes as he went. But to be honest, that was how things went. Burton had dealt with such practices in Somaliland. The big caravan that Burton had assembled was a challenge for him. He was accustomed to small groups, where people were quick to follow orders. Now he had to deal with natives who didn't buckle to all of his whims, and as the boss, he had to handle petty squabbles and thefts and minor annoyances. The African porters and Ascaris were notoriously fickle. They would protest or desert if they felt they were being mistreated. It wasn't something he was accustomed to dealing with. Burton compared it all to herding cattle, a slow process of cajoling and guiding and yelling and begging to keep the caravan train moving along. I also want to point out that managing such a large number of people was dangerous, and that leads me to a story that Burton did not include in his book. At one point in the March West, two of the Ascaris in the expedition were talking, out loud, about killing Burton and Speak. They could then just take all the best stuff in the caravan and head back to Zanzibar, much richer and without the dangers of a long inland march. What they didn't know was that Burton had learned quite a bit of their language and understood what was about to happen. Burton would thus turn quickly toward the men, pulling a knife as he did so. He then stabbed one of the men to death. The other fell to the ground, begging for his life. Now, this is a story that Burton told to a friend years later, who then told it to others. So if it is true, we don't know. Burton was known to love telling shocking stories, so it might have just been him showing off. But we shouldn't discount it. The caravan had a hundred plus people, and all it would take was one angry man to try and end the lives of the two strangers. So the march inland would immediately put Burton in a variety of different landscapes. Plains, savannas, marshes, and what we think of as classic African jungle. The foliage thick and huge, right out of a movie. Thankfully, the trails were well used, and Burton's team would even run into other caravans coming east from the interior. Often these were slave caravans. Burton talks about the slave trade in depth. Over the last 40 years or so, the Arabs had gone deeper and deeper into the African interior for slaves. Burton called it a corrupting force. The natives now preyed on one another, seeking to sell their enemies and neighbors to slavers. It wasn't as bad nearer to the coast, as the tribes had nominal protection from the Sultan of Zanzibar, but in the interior, fear ruled many places. Burton would say this of the slave trade, quote, the traffic annihilates every better feeling of humanity, end quote. So, the caravan would begin a slow plot west. The land was filled with few large communities. Instead, there were lots of villages, most self-governing. The villages weren't powerful enough to threaten the caravan, especially one armed like Burton's, but they would each extract a small toll for passing. By the way, as you can imagine, Burton will write a very long book, two volumes again, on his trip into the African interior. The book alternates between telling his story with chapters of information about the people and the lands. It is typical Burton. I have put a link to those volumes on the website. Anyhow, by July 5th, there were already signs of problems within the caravan. Three donkeys would die, and Speak developed a fever. Five days later, Burton was sick as well. The men were weak and had an aching head, plus burning eyes and unsteady legs. Burton would say, quote, The new life, the alternations of damp heat and wet cold, the useless fatigue of walking, the sorry labor of wading and reloading asses, the exposure to the sun and dew, but not least the morbific influence, the wear and tear at the prospect of imminent failure, all were beginning to tell heavily on me, end quote. And to think, the men had only been going for two weeks. The expedition was just getting started. 
Regarding the men's illnesses, this was not uncommon. Most newcomers got sick, malaria was common, and there were several different types of fever. These illnesses could lay a person up for days, weeks, and even months, or they could kill. By July 14th, the caravan had covered 118 miles in 18 days. Burton was so weak, he couldn't walk. He tried native remedies, as well as others he had learned in Somaliland and Arabia, but nothing worked. He had to ride on a donkey, supported by porters. The jungle wore on both Burton and Speak. Everything was so big. The grass was 12 and 13 feet high. Massive trees were entirely covered in moss or fungi. Creepers and climbers were everywhere, covering everything. The stench of rotting vegetation was everywhere. The caravan would march through blinding sun and slog through mile-long bogs. Also, the humidity was taking its toll. Anything metal began to rust. Clasps and springs just snapped. Paper turned soggy. Clothing began to rot. Matches went at fire. It even affected the food, as it often just melted in the paste. Despite all of this, Burton marveled at the life around him. Crocodiles, leopards, hyenas, zebras, hippos, monkeys, and a million other animals flourished. He had one description that I really liked, which I will share. Quote, the woods abound with large and small gray monkeys with black faces. Clinging to trees, they gaze for a time imperturbably at the passing strangers, till, having satisfied curiosity, they descend and bound away with long plunging leaps. End quote. I love that because when you read it, you can visualize exactly what he's saying. On July 23rd, the caravan would rest for three days. Burton, despite trembling hands, would send a report back to the Royal Geographical Society. He was in a foul mood, and he had nothing good to say about the natives. In addition, he asked for more medicine, such as quinine and narcotics. Also, it was here that 30 slaves brought from Zanzibar would return. As a note, the number of men the expedition had would constantly be in a state of flux. One day a couple men might desert, but then a few days later they could hire some new ones. The donkeys were a different story. As they died or were stolen, there was little Burton could do to replace them. The caravan would next reach the slave station of Zongomiro, which is today Morogoro in Tanzania. Zongomiro was at the base of the Yuzagara Mountains, which the expedition would head into next. Thousands would pass through the town each week. By this time, Burton and Speak were in terrible shape and could barely walk. They would rest here for nine days, allowing both men to recover a bit. Burton would also be able to add some porters to the expedition, getting it back up to full strength. Quick comment, despite being constantly sick, Burton still managed to keep a ton of notes. And as always, he indulged in learning about the sexual habits of the natives. In a related comment, Burton would find one advantage to developing a high fever. His syphilis, which he had suffered from for several years, would be cured. A high fever will, at times, kill other infections, such as syphilis. So yay for malaria. The caravan would continue on August 7th, heading towards the Yusagara Hills. These were difficult times for the expedition. In the hills, the men's health improved a bit, but they were still incredibly weak, and it was hard to muster the energy to deal with running the caravan. This made it difficult to control the men. There were constant quarrels, and porters were deserting, often taking with them the best goods, even donkeys. And when the porters felt they were being forced to carry too much of a load, they would simply toss aside whatever they didn't want to carry. Burton could do little to stop it. He didn't have enough good, trusted men with him to keep the others in line. Thus, food and gear was lost, instruments broken. It didn't help that the trail was littered with the bones of human beings, sometimes fresh. These were usually slaves, or porters, who had died of illness. Smallpox was the big issue, as it had been brought inland and was ravaging the native populations. So up into the highlands the caravans went, up and down, up and down, the elevation rising to more than 2,000 feet, or 610 meters. And then, on August 16th, things almost came to a head when Burton ordered all the gear to be repacked. The Ascaris refused. 
They accused Burton of starving them and tried to negotiate for more food and pay. Burton refused, even after there were murmured threats about killing the white men. The soldiers then demanded Burton write out a letter, dismissing them from the caravan. They didn't want to return to Zanzibar and have the Sultan find out that they had abandoned Burton. Again, Burton refused. Let them leave, he said, calling their bluff. Burton ordered the rest of the caravan to move on. It wouldn't take long for the Iskaris to cave, and they were soon back with the caravan, begging forgiveness. And so the caravan pushed on, going through areas of jungle, bogs, and savannas, and crossing over innumerable rivers. As they went, supplies were lost or just dumped, and the donkeys collapsed. By September 4th, only one donkey was left that could be ridden. Luckily, the caravan reached an area where food was plentiful, and the expedition could trade for milk, honey, and butter. And Burton was able to trade with caravans heading east, adding rice and salt, and even a pair of fresh donkeys. On September 10th, the line of men and animals began to ascend the Rubeo Mountains of the Usagara Range. Speak and Burton, both still very weak, struggled as they couldn't ride the donkeys up the steep and narrow trails. At one point, the expedition would be startled by the sudden appearance of a native war party moving down the mountains. Everyone panicked, thinking they were under attack. However, the war party of the Wahamba tribe were heading into the valley below to seize cattle from the villages. Thankfully, they had no interest in Burton and his team. The expedition would climb for six hours before Burton would call a halt due to Captain Speak's health, taking a turn for the worse. He fell into a near-coma-like state. He was delirious and feverish. Burton was worried that Speak had suffered permanent brain damage. Writing about Speak, Burton said, quote, Death appeared stamped upon his features. End quote. As the caravan waited, the men complained of the cold weather and suggested they turn back. Burton gave them a firm no. Also, Burton would take the time to inspect all the supplies. He had brought provisions for a year, but now, three months in, it was half gone. I put this blame mostly on Burton. He had made some poor decisions and not managed things efficiently, and he had expected everyone to obey a British officer, just like he was accustomed to in India and Arabia. And not having a doctor had hampered them big time. Also, Burton's lack of mastery of the local languages can't be underestimated. He was not used to this. It isolated him from others, and it limited his effectiveness. In the end, there was so much going on that was out of Burton's hands. He was in an unfamiliar place, didn't speak the language well, or at all, depending on where he was, and was racked by illness. That he and Speak persisted and kept moving forward was pretty amazing. The next day, Speak would improve, but he could not walk and had to be carried in a hammock. A note here about Burton and Speak. As we have discussed, they were very different men. However, as the only two white men and British officers, they still had a common bond. Speak especially needed Burton because he could not talk to anyone else, save for Bombay, who knew a little Hindustani. This isolated Speak, never an outgoing person to begin with. The two men would work together and even read Shakespeare to each other at night, but they were never friends. Burton almost always refers to Speak as his, quote, companion, end quote. The big thing I want to note is that Speak and Burton tolerated each other through this part of the journey, mostly because they needed each other, but they did not like each other. So up and up the expedition went, reaching heights of nearly 6,000 feet, or 1,830 meters. Finally, on September 18th, they went through a place called Windy Pass and began to descend to the plains of Ugogo, a flat, grassy plateau. By this time, the number of porters who had started the expedition was half, and the number of donkeys was a third of their original number. The plains were quite arid, and there were stretches where water was hard to find for days, especially in the dry months. And then the caravan would arrive at the town of Ugogo. Now, as I said earlier, up to this point, Burton had generally arrived at a village and given small gifts to the local chiefs and elders. Beads were a common gift. 
However, going forward, this was going to change. The natives were more organized and powerful. Thus, there was a complex tribute system with four main chiefs who every caravan had to deal with. Burton would encounter the first of these chiefs on October 7, 1857. To proceed, he would have to give them ten lengths of cloth, plus other items. The next chief extracted more than twice that for tribute, and so went the routine. The good part for Burton was that these transactions were organized and clear-cut. It might have grated on him to pay such prices, but it meant that the caravan kept moving west. By the way, the main item of trade was now cloth. There were three kinds of it. One was called Mercani, which is a corruption of the word American. This was white shirting and sheeting, brought to Zanzibar by American merchants. The second cloth was Kaniki, which was an indigo-dyed cotton brought from India. The third cloth was called Cloths of Many Names. These were color cloths made in Arabia and India, usually of cotton. All of these were greatly desired by the native peoples. Now, despite paying these large tolls, we have to remember that the deeper into the interior the expedition got, the more danger they faced. There was always the threat that someone would try and plunder the caravan or seize the men and women to be sold as slaves. One caravan they had recently passed had been surprised by a warring tribe while they slept. Twenty-five men had been slaughtered in the fight. On November 7th, the caravan would reach Tabora, the principal inland town in the region. They had been traveling for 134 days and had marched 600 miles, or 185 kilometers. Tabora was the hub of slave and ivory traders in the region, with many trade routes converging here. The town featured water and permanent homes, many of which were quite luxurious, with gardens and protective walls. These were the home of the slave traders. Burton quickly made friends with the Arabs. He was familiar with Arab customs and the language, and the traders enjoyed his company. No doubt he was a breath of fresh air. Burton couldn't help but compare the Arabs to the Africans, the latter of who he felt were savage and selfish. In Tabora, Burton would wait impatiently for five weeks to depart. The delay was due to heavy rains and illness running through the ranks of the expedition. Thankfully, a trader from Oman would provide warehouse space for Burton and help him acquire porters and provisions. By the way, the Arabs told Burton that the Sea of Ujiji was about 200 miles straight west, and the caravan trail would take them to the trading station, also called Ujiji, on the lake. They said it was a 25-day journey. As a note, I have been referring to the Great Inland Lake as the Sea of Ujiji. This was the name the Arabs used, but the native people called it Tanganyika, which is what I will use going forward. As noted, there is a town called Ujiji, which is where Burton will head for. Another thing I want to note is that Burton had been told that there were other lakes other than Tanganyika, including another great lake to the north. We will talk about this next time, as it is very important to our story. The expedition would finally depart from Tabora on December 15th, loaded with provisions plus accompanied by fresh pack animals and porters. The expected 25-day march would take nearly two months. This was due to bad weather, meaning rain, and illness. Both Burton and Speak would, again, be struck down at various points. On January 18, 1858, Burton would find himself with a terrible cold. His feet and legs began to burn and swell, and soon his arms and legs could not move, and he felt like he was being pricked with thousands of needles. He thought he was going to die, as did Speak. The expedition would halt for three days before Burton could continue, and even then, it was only by being carried in a hammock. By the way, Burton would not be able to walk any sort of distance for at least a year, and the numbness in his hands and feet would take even longer to leave him. And with Burton incapacitated, it does not mean that Speak was all healthy and happy. A week after Burton's illness, Speak would be hit by an eye infection. Speak's eyesight had never been good, ever since he had been temporarily blinded by conjunctivitis as a child. Even reading was, at times, an issue for him, although there was some speculation that Speak was dyslexic. The eye infection, by the way, would also strike Burton, but not nearly as bad. 
and so the caravan would push on, Burton in a hammock. Speak rode atop a donkey, nearly blind, being led by one of the men. They would push on through rugged terrain, jungles and rivers and so forth. And then, on February 13th, the caravan would come to the top of a stony hill, and Burton saw a shining light below. He asked Bombay, quote, What is that streak of light that lies below? End quote. Bombay replied, quote, I am of the opinion that that is the water. End quote. Burton thought that the body of water looked small. Was this the great lake everyone talked about? He was severely disappointed and briefly considered turning back. The natives and Arabs had spoken of another lake to the north. Perhaps that was the lake he was seeking. But then Burton moved forward, and it was not long before all was revealed. Before him was a massive lake, one that stretched as far as the eye could see. This was Lake Tanganyika. Burton was elated, writing, quote, Forgetting toils, dangers, and the doubtfulness of return, I felt willing to endure double what I had endured, and the party seemed to join with me in joy, end quote. And he was right. The rest of the caravan was thrilled as well. They had reached their destination, and it was a glorious view and a great achievement. Well, not everyone was thrilled. John Hanning Speak was nearly blind and could not share in the vision. He would later write, quote, Here you may picture to yourself my bitter disappointment after toiling through so many miles of savage life, all the time emaciated by divers' sickness and weakened by great privations of food and rest. I found approaching the zenith of my ambition, the great lake in question, nothing but mist and glare before my eyes. From the summit of the eastern horn, the lovely Tanganyika Lake could be seen in all its glory by everybody but myself. End quote. But Speak's disappointment did not dim Burton's joy. For Richard Francis Burton, this was all he had dreamed of. He had found the legendary in the Lake of Africa. Now they had to march to the lake, find a boat, and explore it. If they found a river flowing to the north out of the lake, well, there was a good chance that this was the source of the Nile. This discovery would bring him fame, money, and respect. And it justified all that he had done and all that he believed. I want to add that, at that moment, the lake would have been a truly amazing sight. Lake Tanganyika, which is one of the African Great Lakes, is the second largest lake by volume and the second deepest in the world. The lake, if you haven't looked at a map, is long, measuring 673 kilometers, or 418 miles, from north to south, and 72 kilometers, or 45 miles, wide. That makes it nearly 10 times as long as it is wide. It is the world's longest freshwater lake. It was truly a momentous discovery for Burton. The expedition would arrive in Ujiji on Lake Tanganyika on February 14th. The town, a center of slave and ivory trade, would later be where Henry Morton Stanley and Dr. David Livingston would have their famous encounter. It had taken Burton and Speak seven and a half months to reach Lake Tanganyika. Of that time, they had spent a hundred days marching. I do want to point out that Burton had followed established trade routes to get to his destination and would not have made it without the aid of the Arab traders and the African natives. Still, what he and Speak had done was pretty extraordinary. The lake before Burton was absolutely massive, and the guy didn't even really understand just how big it really was. And this, my friends, is where we are going to leave things for today. Despite all the challenges, Burton was triumphant. And next time, we will detail Burton and Speak's exploration of the lake, and even more importantly, talk about that rumored Great Lake to the north. So that is it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Join us next time for part five in our series on Richard Francis Burton. Thanks so much for listening. Take care. I also want to remind you that the Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to find other great independent podcasts, such as Monster Talk and My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. That's at airwavemedia.com. Hi, I'm Mike Troy, host of the American Revolution podcast on the Airwave Media Network. 
This podcast is the origin story of the United States, how we went from colonies ruled by a king to the democratic republic that we have today. The American Revolution podcast tells the story of the revolution from beginning to end. Please subscribe for free. We're available on all major podcast platforms. I hope you will join me today on the American Revolution podcast. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. <laughs> 